0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Project Liberal Podcast. I'm Josh Heckel, joined, as always, by Jonathan Casey. Good morning, Jonathan, or good afternoon. Good morning.
1: Good afternoon.
0: <laughs> yeah, good afternoon. Um, today, we are joined uh, by uh, a man who also may not need any introduction, but just if you're not familiar with him, his name is Austin Peterson. He's a writer. He's an activist. He's a commentator. He's a broadcaster. Uh, I've been a fan, or at least following you, Austin, since, I think, 2015, 2016, when you ran for the presidential nomination of the Libertarian Party, and I believe you came as a runner-up to Gary Johnson, right? You're very close to, to that. I also know you ran uh, uh, for Senate in Missouri uh, against the really annoying uh, Josh Howley, right? Was that, that's the guy that you went up against. Um, and you're the host of the Wake Up America show, among other things. Austin, thank you for making time to talk with us yeah,
2: Joshua, Jonathan,, uh, thank you for having me here today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's certainly at the top of everyone's minds in the Liberty movement these days,
0: yeah. So as you know, um as you probably know as 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 uh, over the last couple months, John and I have um some unique perspectives on the liberty movement. Um I'm convinced, as many of the audience probably is aware of that, Uh, libertarianism needs a rebranding, and we need to find a way to create a a banner and a coalition that can unite both true libertarians and classical liberals, as well as people that embrace liberal values on both the left and the right. And one of the reasons why we started this project, uh, Project Liberal, was to find a way to build that coalition. Um, One of the reasons why I'm a huge fan of, of many of the things that you stand for is that you have been very, uh, you, you've picked some fights in the, in the libertarian movement and the liberty movement over the last couple of years, specifically around foreign policy. And I think that many of the things you say are on point. And I want to dig a little bit more into them. But before I do that, I'm curious if I want to read a tweet um, that you posted uh, just to frame everything and then maybe get you to add some context to it. Should he about... be worried? <laughs> no, it's not that bad. It was, it was, it was good. Uh, he said uh, anti-war is a Pestilential boil on the ass of U.S. libertarianism. It's a cover for pro-Putin, pro-Islamic terrorist views couched in non-interventionism. There's no litmus test for any other global conflict other than those of Israel or the U.S. The U.S. and Israel must always be seen as the oppressors and the colonizers. U.S. ANCAPs are woke, engaging in the same presentism as those who destroy statues. Hopefully I didn't mispronounce anything there. I am just wondering if you can maybe kick us off, Austin, Tell us a little bit about how you got to this place, what brought you into some of these conversations recently, and just kind of your perspective on where we stand on this topic. Sure.
2: So I'll try and summarize this all, but this is something that's been bothering me for over a decade now. Um, And I am someone who got activated in the libertarian movement specifically because of Congressman Ron Paul's debate with Rudy Giuliani in 2008, when he, said to, when he was talking to Rudy Giuliani about the concept of blowback. And hundreds of thousands of other libertarians got active for the same reasons. That was why I was initially inspired to begin my campaigns that eventually culminated in getting me to where I'm at today as a libertarian activist. But over the years, as I have been embedded in the liberty movement, worked at some of its most prestigious think tanks, You know, uh, been a Libertarian Party, uh, you know, street uh, activist, handing out petitions, trying to get candidates on ballots. You know, I've done pretty much everything you can in the Libertarian movement, from the street level to running for president of the United States. So, you know, in all my interactions over the years, of these thousands of conversations that I've had in foreign policy, and getting to know many of the Libertarian leaders intimately, um, I've discovered over the years that the the so-called principled stance on foreign policy had an origination point that was developed out of a viewpoint that was an established Marxist viewpoint. And, which is not to say that a communist can't be right about a few things, right? Um, I, I, I'm not of the fall- fallacious thinking that just because Bernie Sanders says it, that means it's wrong. Most people... Think that way. If if yep. Joe Biden says it, then we take the opposite position, right? So so I'm not I'm not that that kind of a shallow thinker. However, um, in 2013, uh, I issued a light criticism of the Ron Paul foreign policy think tank at the time, because when Putin first incur, uh, had his first incursion into Crimea. That conflict uh, blew a hole open into my views of foreign policy because I could I was starting to see that it was it seemed as if the views uh, the foreign policy views of libertarians were a some I, I won't say reactionary, but it was always it, it seemed as if by default whatever the stance was 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 the United States. Was the it was the fault of the United States if it weren't for the United States involvement, this would never happen. And and I was like, I would just basic logic would say, well, this would deny that, like, you know, Islamic terrorists or Putin don't make the aren't their own act, you know, making their own decisions based on their own uh their own beliefs or their own values or what's in their own best interests, as if the United States is this is kind of like a puppet master view, the CIA controls everything, right? And yeah. I'm like, well. You know, someone who has run into a few agents in my my time, I can tell you, they're not necessarily the most brilliant people in the world, and they make mistakes like anybody else. Uh, for you know, that libertarians should be aware of that concept of blunders, right? So, yep. you know, the idea that we were sort of like engineering Putin into this invasion and putting his back into the wall so that he had to do it, I'm like. I mean, that would be a foreign policy masterstroke by the CIA, and, and what we see more often is usually the failure of intelligence agencies, not the brilliant maneuvers of these things. So in issuing that criticism at the time that I said that it sounds as if this foreign policy is more anti-United States than it is pro-liberty, um, th- that exploded. I mean, you can find hit pieces on me from that think tank, you know, from libertarians going back to 2013, but Ukrainian libertarians were writing to me at the time saying, Austin, thank you, we're trying to fight for our own individual liberty. We're fighting yeah. for our own a- autonomy here. And we see libertarians in the United States, we thought we thought they were allies. They're calling us Nazis. They're telling us that we're like, out there and like, listen, the Azov Battalion, you know, is Ukraine a great country? You know, probably not. On the scale of libertarianism, probably not, right? But I think what happens is is with this horseshoe theory um, and people who, p- human beings all naturally engage in binary thinking. It's uh, If you're not this, you're that, right? So what happens is that if you're anti-US, well then you start to, they become pro-Putin, right? Mm-hmm. If you're anti-US, they become pro-Osama Bin Laden. Uh, mm-hmm. if you've seen sure. last year, at the end of last year, plenty of libertarians were out uh, taking the pages out of Osama Bin Laden, cherry picking Osama bin Laden's letters to America to say, well, he attacked us because the United States has been over there. And Ron Paul said it in his speech in 2008. And, and God, if it isn't difficult for me to look back in my, in my younger years of activism in my late 20s, I'm 42 now, and see see my, naive, my naivete, is that how it's pronounced, naivete? <laughs> Uh, In in understanding of foreign policy, and I think that probably a lot of libertarians suffer from that same naivete without a really broad-based understanding of foreign policy, it's easy to outsource your views because it's such a complex topic, and I think other libertarians probably have done that as well. Uh, but when you outsource your views to people like Scott and Horton or to people at antiwar.com or others, you've outsourced your views to literal communists, to Marxists, who look at the world from a view of what I described in that tweet of the, the moral time machine. Essentially, the, the Wokies, you know, I say that libertarian foreign policy is woke. Not, I don't just say that lightly. I say that because to, to be woke is to believe in postmodernism, this idea that there's no objective truth, and to believe in this concept of presentism. Black Lives Matter, people like this, they destroy statues in the United States because they apply a moral framework of today to to incidents and things that occur in the past. Libertarians do this with Israel all the time and they go back and they cherry pick history in order to meet their, you know, whatever standard it is, which is an anti-US or an anti-Israel view that comes from a view of history informed by Noam Chomsky, and Howard Zinn, and people who are our ideological opposites to a large degree. Which is, again, not to say that Howard Zinn or Noam Chomsky haven't found, you know, blind squirrels haven't found nuts a few times, uh, or that Bernie Sanders hasn't accurately stated what our problems are and then offered us the worst solutions in in all of human history that gets millions of people killed. But at the end of the day, antiwar.com is the outsourced is where libertarians go to outsource their thinking on foreign policy, because it's such a difficult topic. I mean, how many libertarians are going to George Washington University and getting studies in international relations? Very, very few of us, right? Uh, So so because of that, we sort of look at, okay, well, we're going to listen to maybe three or four people when it comes to our foreign policy and reject everyone else. And because because uh, libertarians operate on a purge mentality, very similar to Marxists and communists, like there's sort of like there's always this um, these Stalinist purge squads that operate in order to eject anybody from the movement immediately. They're they're constantly on the search for any heresy uh, that strays from the true libertarian position. Um, and as I've, over the years I've just become less and less dogmatic. I mean I've never been a very Orthodox person, you know I'm I'm not a superstitious per- person. I'm not a religious person. Uh, I really I don't care for this a concept of orthodoxy. I really like the idea of a pluralist thinking. Uh, you know I like to I like to cherry pick as well <laughs> um, because I think that's the best way to get to the facts and then take the facts and then point my way to the truth. But in regards to you know to to sum this all up. You know, the view, my view on foreign policy is informed on my understanding of history that comes from reading sources that agree both agree with my worldview and disagree with my worldview. Uh, and if the facts uh, go up against what it is that I believe, then you've got to change your mind based on what the, the new information that comes in. That's not popular to do uh, in politics. It's dangerous, right? You lose yeah. friends and you make enemies because people – because of our tribal nature of politics and libertarians are not immune to this, you know, we, uh, we, uh, we sort of turn on and sort of have the, we, we eat our young and we, we eject people from the movement. We have cliques and cool kids clubs and right. And you have to adhere to an orthodoxy in order to be a part of a clique in the Liberty movement, which, you know what, thankfully at this point in time, I don't have to, um, kiss anyone's ass. I don't take a dime or a dollar from anybody else in this movement that I don't earn from a pure capitalist transaction, I have a very successful talk show that I talk about my libertarian ideas and I talk about my doubts that I have on sometimes on libertarian yeah. ideals, uh, and sometimes I face backlash for that. But frankly, I don't give a shit because I don't have to. I don't have to. I don't owe anybody anything, uh, and I make my own living as my own person, and I can say what I want to say. And boy, if that I haven't always had that freedom and that luxury.
0: And yeah, that only, is it.
2: Not a lot of libertarians do. If they work for many of these think tanks, they don't have that freedom or luxury. So, so Yeah, I'm no, speaking. that's
0: absolutely a, de- a huge yeah. win. Sorry to cut you off, Austin. Keep going. Cool. <clears throat> No, I was just gonna like say
2: that. I'm speaking out because I can because you know I I'm, I don't have to be afraid of Dave Smith or Clint Russell because they're gonna do an angry tweet storm at me right they might they might ratio me on Twitter oh no you know like I, I monetize <laughs> as much as the best of them right so it's like you know I I um I don't feel the need to have to fit in I never have fit in very well anyway but uh, you know I don't I don't have to. Um, Say what's necessary in order to get along. As a matter of fact, I had a job in Washington D.C. I was making the bit the most high-paying job I ever had in my career, working at Freedom Works. I was making ninety grand a year, and I had a parking lot spot on Capitol Hill across from the Senate, and I could hang out with the senators. and Fox News was down on the second floor, and I could go hang out with all of them all the time. and I quit that job because. The corruption in Washington D.C. was so rampant that in order for me to get beyond that level, beyond any kind of a merit level, you've got you really have to like sell a piece of your soul. Yep. Um, so that was kind of the beginning, right then in 2013, of me sort of like walking away from these institutions. And it certainly burned bridges, right? You don't get the conference invites or the talk invites and things like that, right? And, and when you're pissing people off and, and you know, not uh, going along with the crowd because, you know, the, the libertarian opera movement, again, operates very much on a very similar tribal aspect as to other movements as well. But foreign policies are a weak spot. I, I used to deny it. Conservatives would attack us. I went to Tea Party rallies and they're like, well, they're isolationists, blah blah blah. They don't want, you know, they hate the United States. And I didn't and I would argue with them. Um but now I actually I kind of start to th- see that they're right. I do well, think that I, yeah, some I, yeah, I, I do think that a lot of libertarians are isolationists. That's that's fine if you are. Um, That's your own point of view. Right. And then I think a lot of libertarians do despise the United States. I think that they'll lie if you ask them in public. But if you go to the conferences and you have a private conversation over a couple of martinis, they'll absolutely start spewing pro-Russian, anti-American stuff. They'll absolutely say that they support Vladimir Putin because... You know the, they want they, they did
1: that they yeah. they did that around the the rally that uh, Angela McCardle and the Libertarian Party put on. We you know we took us pretty I took a, Josh and I took a pretty hard stance against that rally and said no this is this is a really bad idea. This is going to associate us with some horrible people. And then everybody was like no it's not pro Putin it's not this. And then we started looking at it and these people openly admitted yes Dan, 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 Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul uh, Institute I guess he openly said I love Putin. I love what he's doing. He's rounding up the gate, not quite saying I I like him rounding up the gate, but basically something very similar along those lines. And so it revealed a whole lot of that exact sentiment, that anti, just pure anti-American. It's not principled. It's not anything, but just pure, pure adoration for a dictator thousands of miles away.
2: Yeah. Listen, I'm not stupid. OK, like I, I love I love my country, but I'm not a blind nationalist. I'm a very oh, I'm an aware nationalist. OK, I love the United States. I think it's one of the better, freer countries in the world, even with its problems. But the one thing, really, the shining beacon of light of hope that has just got me sitting back with like, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that meme of that very smug looking goat with its nose in the air. But like uh, I've really just been enjoying the fallout of the foreign policy views of Argentina's new anarcho-capitalist president, Javier Malay. And I love calling, it's the first time I've ever been like, ah, he's an anarcho-capitalist. But it's because of his foreign policy views that I love attaching that label to him, because there is a libertarian who understands the complexities of foreign policy. And that has given me uh, just a lot of, Bragging rights in recent weeks.
0: <laughs> one of the one of the things that I think you 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 you, you touched on this early in uh, in your opening remarks there, which was a, which was about the non aggression principle and a lot of the fact that this stuff flows out of the non aggression principle. Um, so I, I see the same thing that you see, Austin. Absolutely. I, I was actually a little I was a little bit younger than you, but I was I was an eighteen year old I believe uh, right when I joined the libertarian movement in twenty twelve, and then I was in my early twenties when you ran for president. And uh, at the time, in the early 2010s, I saw the same thing you do. Uh, Americans' foreign policy was absolutely causing major problems. I think we, we all on this call agree that the invasion occupation of Afghanistan Iraq was a mistake, or at least we stayed far too long. And there are many things that the United States did wrong there. And I think uh, for me, that seemed like an obvious truth. And it wasn't until 2014, 2015, 2016, in the late 2010s, and then especially now in the 2020s, where I saw that 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 tendency to be reflexively anti-American start, again, mapping itself onto being, a, a, you know, adorating um, uh, dictators and being pro-Putin, being pro- so anti-American that we, they became pro-dictator. Uh, and I'm curious as to where you feel like that starts, like the core of that, I mean, is that, is that because the non progression principle sits at the core of libertarian philosophy, and it could be, it could be, it could if, be if it does, yeah, that's probably
2: that might be, it might be, because it, I think if it, if you start with a faulty premise, you're going to look at things, your like all your conclusions are likely to be flawed. Um <clears throat> I mean, it's no secret that I've never been the biggest fan of the non-aggression principle. It it might have been one of the reasons why, you know, I didn't win the Libertarian Party's nomination in 2016. People were very I mean, there was an antibiotic response to my questioning of the non-aggression principle as, as what many libertarians would like to term it as axiomatic. But I, I do think that uh it, it falls into this a similar Marxist trap of seeing the world as just good guys versus bad guys. So to try and extrapolate something like a a person to person interaction into the the complicated uh, web of alliances and and struggles between nation states, you're going to make lots and lots of mistakes. And what Marxists do is they look at the world through oppressors and oppressed. When I was talking about wokeism earlier, it's to look at the world as to say, well, they, they have power, and therefore they are the oppressors, right? If the white, you know, it's, this is how academics, leftist academics view the world. White people have power, therefore they are oppressors, and the entire world can be viewed in, and summated in this way. The foreign policy views of antiwar.com, heavily influenced by Scott Horton and formerly... Uh, Justin Raimondo, applies that same view to Israel that leftist communists do, which is to say Jews have power, therefore they are the oppressors. When in reality, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians or their Arab neighbors, the 22 Arab nations surrounding them, cannot be so easily boiled down to an idea as simple as oppressors and oppressed or aggressors and aggressed, right? Because at at the end of the day, everybody wants to look at history within a very limited timeline because it makes it very convenient for us to justify our worldviews when this conflict goes back to BC, and so you know you can't just say, "Well, I'm only going to look at this conflict in terms of 1948 and and beyond," and say this and use this to justify my worldview in order to um, in order to ensure that my view of Islamic terrorism as a as an American policy imperialist view. Um, is valid and therefore justified, right? So in order to justify an anti-US or anti-imperial view, you have to say, well, maybe the United States were the good guys in World War II, maybe, which a lot of them won't even say that. As a matter of fact, like the Pat Buchananites, yeah. would they actually say we should have been on the side of the Nazis of World War II, which is, you know, I mean, it's a whole nother discussion there with the paleoconservatives and, and, and all of that. But... Most libertarians will say at least, okay, well, the United States were attacked by Japan and therefore World War II is justified. But everything after that, from then on, it was a consequence of American imperialism. And I'm like, okay, well... The United States definitely screwed up in the Cold War and did some bad things and the CIA is is corrupt and certainly the deep state is a problem and, and works against our rights outside of the proper purview of any uh, of the of the executive branch and needs to be dismantled. Okay. Agreed there, right? Should that should be enough, right, for most libertarians. But it's not enough. You have to see every single aggressive act of aggression As somehow tied back to Langley or somehow tied back to Fairfax, Virginia, or, you know, everything gets tied back to Washington, D.C. you know, if if there was ever, you know, any incident around the world, it is the United States or Israel's fault. Yeah, uh, it's not only that.
0: Yeah. And it's not only uh, it's not only completely conspiratorial. But it undermines responsibility. I mean, and personal responsibility, the idea of personal responsibility, like the idea that somehow Putin is justified in his invasion of Ukraine because of some action the CIA may have taken or some conspiracy that you've invented, somehow that makes it justified for him to violate internationally recognized borders and kill people? I mean, it's completely nonsensical. I didn't want to cut you off, but uh, yeah, I, I can I, see exactly where you're going with that. Hmm.
1: I think that I've, you know, we talked about the non-aggression principle kind of responsible for some of these things i think it is both directly and indirectly responsible for some of this binary thinking because you know the non-aggression principle is a is a good general rule of thumb but the world's complicated if you're seeing somebody on private property being aggressed against can you trespass onto that property? absolutely you can i'm sorry if you if your worldview doesn't say yes we can aggress against smaller you know we can make smaller aggressions to prevent bigger ones then i'm sorry it's not going to apply to the real world yeah right um, and and I also think that this kind of it cre- the NAP creates kind of this bi- like the binary thinking that we're talking about good versus evil and w- w- the, a lot of libertarians have gotten this mindset that America is the great devil. I mean, we've we've heard Scott Gordon himself basically use that exact terminology that 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 Obama that Osama was using back in the day that the great America is the great Satan or whatever they whatever they use and and so what you have is you have this situation that you you start. Viewing the world from this lens and instead of looking at each scenario as different scenarios with different influences, different uh, scenarios, you just say America bad, everybody else is doing what they can to survive. And that's not the real world. I'm sorry. If you look at if you look at the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and then you look at Ukraine or you look at Israel and say, oh, yeah, they're the exact same situations i'm sorry that doesn't take into account what's actually going on ukraine being invaded and us helping them is not the same as us invading iraq that is those are two entirely different scenarios two entirely different Point. uh justifications whether or not you support even support uh, using uh aid to aid to ukraine well that, special, that is an entirely different a special
2: situation hatred there's a special hatred for israel even more than the united states I had a really good conversation with uh, a young gentleman by the name of Jack Lloyd uh, yesterday on my show because he has been sort of picking fights with Dave Smith on this topic of Israel. And what he points out is that there is no other conflict around the world that provokes the kind of response from the anti-war folks than Israel because China, Pakistan, India, Russia, Russia, they commit as heinous, if not more heinous crimes or acts on a daily basis than you will see in Israel over a matter of decades. But there's never a call for a boycott of China from the anti-war folks. There's never a call for a boycott of Pakistan, right? But there is a a call for a boycott of Israel, right? And so, so what you start to realize is that there is this sort of exception to the rule in regards to... What is an allowable or tolerated opinion? Like I like the there's there's no uh, there's no litmus test for the conflict between the Tamil kings in India and the you know the non merchant forces to the north from the 1500s. But if you have a conflict that's if you happen to weigh in on the side of Israel of this conflict, well, that is just a bridge too far. Any other country around the world, maybe maybe Russia and Ukraine is not a good example for this, but other conflicts around the world, if you're like, oh, well, I kind of think that these this side has a little bit more on the right. No libertarian is going to read you out of the movement for, uh, for some heresy on uh, a conflict between Japan and Korea or something like that. But if it's Israel and you come down on the side of Israel, they will absolutely see you as see you quickly out of the movement. Uh, Jack actually told this story about how naive Horton is, which I've known for quite some time. I I, I think he suffers from from um, from a severe lack of insight into other humans. But Jack was saying that they were at Porkfest when he had met uh, ran into Scott Horton and was asking Scott about um, uh, Robert F Kennedy Jr. And he was just, uh, Scott was going on about how he thought, oh, I've met RFK. I think he's such a good guy. I can tell deep down in his heart he's a really good person and blah, blah, blah. And Jack was like, no, he's not. He hates libertarians. He's an eco-fascist. He he wants to put people like us in jail. He stands almost opposed almost entirely to everything that we stand for. He's not a good person. You're a bad judge of character. And then Horton as soon as RFK Jr defended Israel, Horton did a 180 on him. Right? So it was like, oh, okay. Suddenly we found the issue that was well, so. So it doesn't matter that he's an eco-fascist. It doesn't matter that he wants to take our guns. It, all this other litany of issues of libertarian issues. It's okay to be a heretic on, but if you dare support the the right of the Jews in Israel to defend themselves from Islamic terrorism, then you've gone too far. There's a special there's a special little little hatred oh. there for that.
1: Let, let me, let me, let me expound on that a little bit further. I called out Scott Horton for, for he, he called uh, Mark Cuban a Zionist shill or something along those lines because, and I quote, because he sold part of the Dallas Mavericks to a Jewish couple. And then I called out Scott Horton, and then I have apparently, since I'm a huge Dallas Mavericks fan, just in case anybody didn't know, I'm now a Zionist, according to <laughs> Scott Horton.
0: We, and I, we, could, I have a bunch of anecdotes on that front that we could go into, but I think that, yeah, it, it speaks for itself. So actually, that was something I wanted to talk to you about, Austin, which was, uh, so we, we've touched on the non aggression principle thing, which I think was important. We touched on some of the bigger picture for, foreign policy failings for the libertarians. I also wanted to talk about what I see as a, a rising anti-Semitism, specifically in the movement. Um, I, I think that, I truly believe this, Austin, that there's a divide in the movement between the liberal libertarians and the illiberal libertarians. So I, when, I, when I say libertarian movement, I, I want to be, be clear, there's definitely a difference between many of those forces. But on the illiberal side of the movement, I've seen a lot of that, especially after October 7th. And I'm curious, did you see this? This same stuff happening before October seventh was October seventh the catalyst for you to wake mm-hmm. up to it. I mean, like, oh, have uh, you seen you this for a while?
2: I, you could go back and read um, the the an article that I wrote in 2012 uh, that uh, that it got a lot of traction. It was called "Dinner with a Nazi," uh, and it was back in 2012 or 11 or. It would have been, like, yeah, 2011, I think, actually. I, sat, I was in New York City, and I sat down. It was the first time that I had ever had uh, a conversation with someone who was an avowed national socialist that wasn't, like, your typical sort of, like, creepy-crawly guy who shows up at a convention that has the Nazi flag, you know? Because if you go to a lot of gun shows, which I did growing up, like, there's usually, there's a lot of times people are selling Nazi merchandise, And I'm a collector of World War II artifacts, so I'm always like looking to find things like that. I don't have a lot of uh, of Nazi merchandise or like items paraphernalia, but I collect um, rifles, and some of them are are German rifles from World War II as part of like my memorabilia collection in order to like you know remember history and to to keep it safe. Uh, And um, when you run into some of these people at gun shows, typically, like some of them will be. Fascists, right? They're not collecting it for history necessarily. They're collecting it because they, you know, they like it. You know, you'll know that there's a real Nazi when, like, not only do they collect the actual Nazi stuff from World War II, but they they'll make like new items with swastikas <laughs> on, like knives, and shit like that. So, so I knew what a Nazi was, but most of the time it was just like dudes who live in cabins, you know, and aren't like, they're not like functioning members of society to a large extent, right? So in 2011, I'm in New York City, and I'm sitting down with a gentleman, and I notice he's got the swastika cufflinks on. Uh, And I'm, I'm, you know, a little shocked by this, right? And, um, and we end up having a conversation, and he was a big supporter of Ron Paul. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, well, that's odd because I support Ron Paul because he stands against everything that you claim to believe, right? Centralization of, of power and, and, and corporations and state, you know, hand in hand. But, but it was the conspiracy theories that he loved. It was the, because, because not all conspiracy theorists are Nazis, but all Nazis are conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how that Venn diagram works, right? The overlap. You know, he liked Ron Paul because Ron Paul was against the Federal Reserve, and Ron Paul doesn't want to end the Fed because it's run by Jews. He wants to end the Fed because it's his monetary policy view. But anti-Semites want to end the Fed because they see it as a Jewish banking concern, right? So so that's where that sort of like Venn diagram – you know, overlay occurs. So it was at that time in 2011 or 12 that I'm like, hey, you know, there's a few people hanging around the fringes. These aren't the mainstream people necessarily, right? These aren't the people that get lifted up all the time, right? These, it's not like Nick Fuentes is considered to be like a, a libertarian leader or something. But I mean, but they were there. And, uh, and uh, I, I was sort of awakened to that. Uh, back in 2011, after that conversation with that gentleman who was, I mean, a bright young man, functioning member of society, didn't seem like the type of person that you would easily write off, um, seemed very professional, had a you know, very beautiful young wife, and, um, you know, but was in New York City, downtown Manhattan with a pair of swastika cufflinks, and I was really shocked by that. But, you know, then over the years, as I, you know, as I spent more time in the liberty movement and I started seeing it more and more, I realized that, yeah, you know, that racism, anti-Semitism, you know, a, a general bigotry does exist on the margins. And, you know, this is why I don't fit in well with either the paleo camp or the liberal camp, because you know, I've got, you know, feet in both sides. I sort of, you know, consider myself non-dogmatic and non-orthodox because, because, I do believe that people who are racist or bigoted should be allowed to be free and live in a society that, that you know, that tolerates their, their racism bigotry. If you all remember the Nazi cake thing from Gary Johnson debating me, right? My argument was yeah, that, you know, yeah. the racist or the, or the, that the homophobe should be allowed to be a homophobe and not have to bake the cake, right? But I also said specifically that I don't agree with that. And I would start up the biggest homosexual gay cake, you know, factory yep. right next door to compete with them in a free market society. Uh, and that was not popular with the Johnsonites, you know, the more liberal types, because, you know, many of them were like Gary and said, no, make them bake the cake. Right. So, I, you know, for a short time, I was a hero to the paleo conservatives because I defended their what I believe to be their liberty. Uh, yep. And then uh, until I became anathema to them by not, you know, jumping on board with hating Jews and, you know, being pro-Israel and all that stuff. So, so you could see what an awkward position I find myself to be in. <laughs> um, well, for the record,
1: I'm y- on your side and not Gary Johnson's side me of that. Too. Me and too. I'll be the I'm the biggest left-libtard according to the paleo. So there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I don't yeah, no, actually. Did, uh, I,
2: you know, there's a there's a lot of conversation, long conversation to be had about that because of the Civil Rights Act and the laws as they are. Um, you know, is it would it be a, a better world necessarily if black people weren't allowed to rent hotel rooms in Alabama? Probably not, right? But these are conversations that you need, you need to have at the bar, not in 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 public at a libertarian debate. Um, so um, so, anyways, the anti semitism, the bigotry, it exists. Uh, it's there. You know, I don't see it as, I, here's the thing, like what might be mainstream in our movement or even maybe like a significant body of thought in our movement or significant movement, even if it's larger, the, the paleos are larger than the liberals in the movement at this point in time, it's still dog shit compared to like the rest of society and the views of people. It's still it's still completely, it, it, it is it is immaterial what most libertarians in the United States believe. It, it, the reason why it is immaterial is because our influence has been not only diminishing, but in almost nearly entirely diminished yes. uh, in the United States. I mean, there is no true functioning liberty movement in the United States. It's a atomistic, you know, uh, uh, you know, highly individualized uh, group of people of individuals doing their own thing in their own spaces. Eric July doing his thing, me doing my thing. Very, very little cohesion or, or sticking to stick togetherness. So, I mean, even if there are people in the libertarian movement who might be, you know, devoted national socialists who want to end the Federal Reserve because the Jews are running the place, um, it, it doesn't matter because they the libertarian movement like the, the, if if the, if they can't even get other libertarians on board that message then they're not going to get their message out to the wider group because most people aren't listening to us and they, they aren't interested in what we have to say. With the caveat that on the good news front, um, I have been getting a lot of attention and interest in people who are interested in starting up something new here in the United States based around the ideals of princi- principles of Javier Malay. You know, I, I hosted a space the other night that was a, a conversation between Argentine libertarians and American libertarians. And most of the people who participated, the speakers, were young Argentines who voted for Javier Malay. Uh, And it's fascinating to hear the difference between anarcho-capitalists in Argentina and anarcho-capitalists in the United States. Because countries who don't enjoy the benefits of the protection of the United States military – they are much more – they aren't immune to the altercations and the uh, the subterfuge that foreign nations engage in to undermine their national security. So uh, Argentines are very concerned about China and their national security from China because they have incursions in fishing boats all of the time. And uh, they yeah. are very concerned about their, their national borders. And they, the Argentines wish they had a military – that could uh, operate at one-quarter the strength of the United States so that they could defend their national sovereignty and defend themselves against uh, 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 Iran. They've had terrorist attacks by Islamic terrorists in Argentina, and so they're not as naive because we as Americans, we sleep very peacefully at night because men with guns, are willing to do dangerous, violent things to people overseas under the, under the cloak of night, in the protection of privacy and secrecy—that cloak and dagger thing that we all talk about—that the CIA and these intelligence agencies that we love to hate on, that they, that the the acts that they perform in order to protect us here in the United States—that gives us the fat little cushy Americans the ability to say well, I just think the United States shouldn't be involved. I just think the United States shouldn't get involved in that conflict and it's not in our national interest. Well, how the would you know that? Because there's a whole star, star, listen, you're making me say nice things about the CIA. There's a whole (laughs) wall of stars of dead Americans whose names we will never know who died overseas Engaging in, uh, in in subterfuge or attempting to protect American national security in ways that we don't know. So when they fail, we know. When they succeed, we don't know. Yeah. Right? And and I love this conversation with when I talk to my anarchist libertarian friends about like, would you abolish the CIA? Okay. So then you so then how do we prevent spying from other countries? Yeah. Well, they're not – I love it when an anarchist says, well, if we just stopped spying on other countries, they'd stop spying on us. Really? You really – like, <laughs> no, like I mean, are you that naive? And some of them really are that naive.
0: It is – It is. It is. A, I think it, that points back to what you mentioned earlier, Austin, about the idea that there's just kind of a – there is very often a naive perspective on kind of foreign policy in the movement, and that extends to that. You're completely correct. I mean it's not only is the CIA – uh, not responsible for everything going on around the globe, but there, there, as you said, is a concerted effort from foreign from foreign agencies to interfere and and, and, and influence the American public with propaganda. We're in. Let for- me
1: give you an example. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Here in Texas, we had two protests show up on our capital state capitol steps. One was an, uh, a Muslim protest, and one was an anti-Muslim protest. They tracked it down. Both of them were organized by Russians in Russia to show up on the same day none of the actual organizers showed up it was just Russians in Russia sitting around typing up a typing up a plan getting people involved and they sent these two protests to clash Martin Luther King.
2: King, Martin Luther King Jr like yeah. for like Russia it was like revealed Russian agents used to plant information here in the United States to get people to hate Martin Luther King Jr. a lot of the uh, a lot of the information that we have that people still spread today about MLK Jr. was spread by Russian communists in order to spread discord here in the United States. So that's oh, why every yeah. conspiracy theory is that Russian agents? Is that foreign intelligence agencies love to spread conspiracy theories in the United States to get us to hate each other?
0: And and on top of that, yeah. it's a real big problem when you have people in uh, in the libertarian or, or classical liberal movement that are so willing to embrace that they be, become unwitting actors in spreading it. So not only is that a problem on social media and whatnot, which that's a whole other conversation, but we talked about the anti-war protests that happened last year on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The, the the Mises Caucus uh, took over the Libertarian Party. It's a very, for our audience's sake, that's a very illiberal group that went in and tried to take over and hijack the Libertarian Party. They succeeded in doing so, and immediately after that, they partnered with this this really niche political group called the People's Party. They set up this 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 fund, and almost you know within a matter of weeks, they had over a hundred thousand dollars raised. And uh, they brought literal Russian propagandists on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to talk about why Ukraine was filled with Nazis and effectively undermine um, any sort of, uh, yeah. Two of those
1: speakers, two of those speakers have already defected to Russia. Yes. Scott Ritter and Tara Reid have both defected to Russia. One yeah, of them was convicted pedophile. I
2: my thinking, my thinking yeah. is that th- those two people they've probably been compromised. I mean, my guess on oh, Scott yeah. my, I'm just guessing, I don't know, but my guess on Scott Ritter is that after he got um uh, busted for the uh for the the kitty uh, diddling attempt that he probably they that Russia probably has some intel on him. Oh, I'm sure. in order to yeah, like he probably committed acts like that. And in Russia was maybe supplied people because they do things like that in order uh, in order for them to gain um, you know information to pre- you know prevent him from you know turning on them. He uh, <laughs> Scott Ritter is probably one of the biggest spreaders of Russian propaganda here yes. oh, in yeah. the United States. And well, you know, I, but it, like you know, we talked
1: about. We talked about, you know, kind of conspiratorial, you know, libertarians do have kind of a a conspiracy theorist mindset to some degree, right? We question a lot of things. And I think that's a lot of healthy, there's a lot of healthy aspects to that. Sure. But we also only, a lot of times we talk about, you know, always opposing the U.S. We also, a lot of them, a lot of libertarians do that with conspiracy theories, that if it's a conspiracy theory that makes the U.S. look good, well, it can't be true. Right, but if it may, it's a conspiracy theory that makes America look bad, well, it's it's true. Exactly. It has to be true.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. You'll see that all the time. If it's an anti-U.S. conspiracy theory, then it's true. If it's a pro-U.S. conspiracy theory, well, then it's definitely wrong. But I mean, like you know, the government, our government, is uh, it invites it. I mean, look at what happened with COVID nineteen. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, you know, they, the 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 trust has is at an all time of the government is at an all time low, and in many ways, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. And listen, I love conspiracy theories because they're fun and they're interesting. And but then I'm the type of person who likes to—I don't like to necessarily believe the conspiracy theory. I like to like pull it like a, a thread and unravel it and see if I can find kind of like a you know a puzzle, like yeah. the mystery of like where are the where's the faulty errors and logic, where's the real information? Because a lot of conspiracy theories—the reason why they'll spread is because they'll have grains of truth in them. And you'll, you'll say, okay, well, then what is really the truth in that? So, like, you know, when Alex Jones said that the water, the chemical I don't like putting chemicals in the water, turn the freaking frogs gay. Okay, well, the frogs weren't turning gay, right? But certain chemicals, uh, some hormone, like your hormones can be affected by some of the chemicals in plastics that can leach into water if you're drinking water from certain types of bottles, especially if you heat them up. And it didn't turn the frogs gay, but they spontaneously changed their gender. But that's also a trait of these frogs that right. they, they can do that. It, yeah. And it's like, you know, I don't know if you remember the Jurassic Park thing, but that was kind of like the, the technology, the spoof that they they spoofed it on. Um, so it's like, but so there's a, there's a grain of truth to that conspiracy theory, right? And it's it's fun to find out what's real. But the problem is, most people never have. They don't have the time. They don't want to look past that because they've already confirmed their biases for whatever reason and stuff like that. So you know, I don't want to. You know, I love to shit on conspiracy theories, but not conspiracy theorists because I think most of them are well-meaning people who have healthy distrust and concerns about central power and centralized uh, banking institutions. And I think that many of them truly are our are, are our allies in many ways. They just simply. Um, have they, they simply have drawn the wrong conclusions at the end of the at the end of the day. Uh, based on the information that they have or they've been given, given faulty information. Some of them are victims of, of of foreign intelligence agencies. And you know what? It's it's it would be illogical to assume that our own intelligence agencies aren't running PsyOps here in the United States and that a lot of the mainstream media is, you know, in bed with the pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and others. Listen, I've worked for mainstream media. If you've got a sponsor like Pfizer, you don't talk shit about Pfizer. You can't say anything about that. Like, like, listen. If, if I if I was taking money from um, the local landscaping company here, and I'm the local talk radio station, I can't. It, and and it turns out they're running over grandma's, you know, hand and foot, you know, and they're, they're they have terrible safety practices. If I say that, I'm fired. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter right and so you're not gonna you're not gonna get truth from these mainstream media agencies and and because the bigger that an institution gets i mean the bigger it is the more likely it is to be corrupted and and the more easily it is corrupted because the more money that there is the more just the more danger there is involved in taking the risk to your own bottom line of actually going out and speaking the truth the truth has always been a very dangerous thing. But it's the same in the alternative media, the alternative media, whether it's, you know, Infowars, whatever these, you know, all these huge like conspiracy theory accounts and things like that. They can't tell the truth either, because, you know, the difference between, you know, Prison Planet and MSNBC, they both sell dick pills, but at least Pfizer's actually works. Right. (laughs) So So they but but you can't speak out against the dick pills because. We're getting money from the Dick Bill, so you you have to follow the money, and it operates on the same model. The mainstream media, the alternative media, we're on the same model. Where are they getting paid from? Where's their money coming from? And I'll tell you that you know, 75 to 95 percent of the time, somewhere in there, uh, somebody's going to be there. You take the king's coin, you're going to sing the king's song, right? They're gonna they're gonna advance an agenda. They're gonna sell water. For, if they if they're concerned about fluoride in the system. See if they sell water filters. If they sell water filters and they're deeply concerned about fluoride, then you have uh, a reason to question, right? So it so operates no, the same mainstream media as it does the alternative media.
0: Yeah. So, and the solution, which I think you touched on a lot of very accurate things there, the solution is uh, transparency in government. Um, which I think we all agree, I mean, whether you're on the left or the right, we need more transparency in government and reduce, you know, if we talk about issues, like a lot of people complain that, that trust in institutions are going down. People complain that people don't trust our, our, you know, our, 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 our uh, scientific recommendations in the life of COVID, for example, or, or, um, you know, best practices, the way you fix that is through transparency and truth, right. And, um, and opening up those maybe, doors. Maybe, and, mm-hmm. maybe I'll t-
2: I'll, and I'll throw, I'll throw this back on you on another way how do we conduct, as libertarians, let's say we were Javier Malay, you know, or we, we get into that position, a libertarian becomes president of the United States, how do we conduct foreign policy in a manner that, is, that actually protects the national security of the people that we're elected to represent? Um, you know, I, I had a conversation with Josh Smith and I got him in big trouble because I asked him if he approved of the CIA's assassination of Che Guevara. Uh, and he did. Uh, he said that he did. He's like, okay, I'll give the CIA that one. Okay. And it's like, you know, he's a communist. He had declared war against the United States. He attempted to get nuclear weapons. And if he had gotten them, he would have used them against us. Okay. P- pretty reasonable, but very interventionist. Right. So, um, you know, then he starts getting r- r- raked over the coals. Like what is the role of libertarianism in regards to foreign policy. I don't know that you can actually be a libertarian and conduct foreign policy because how can you possibly have transparency when you're conducting espionage? Like, yeah, they're (laughs) lying.
1: I've got an answer for this. Yeah. So I, I think, and this is, this is, this, I might get a little long winded here, but I think that you have to do is you, you do not have to be transparent in every single action that you do, but you have to be transparent in your methods. Right? You have to say, these are the lines that we operate within. We do not step out of these lines, right? So let's say, for example, I do not need to know where the nu- nuclear co- uh, nukes, uh, nuclear subs are. I do not need to know what the targets are. I do not need to know what the nuclear codes are, but I do have every right to know what is the use case for those nuclear weapons, that they will never be used as, as the first strike, that they will only be used in the you know absolute necessity, last chance, Nuclear new, nuclear missiles are headed our way. We have to respond. I do, you know, so I don't need to know all the little details, but I, I do need to know what are the guidelines for operations. So that, what, are the, what are the rules of engagement? But as far as like a grand foreign policy standpoint for a Libertarian Party, I think, or a Libertarian philosophy, how you apply that to the world scales. One, what works and what doesn't. Two, is it is it being uh, you know accomplished in the right uh, in the right uh way are we actually declaring war are we is congress actually declaring war or is it just a unilateral oh we're spending this budget so we can have a war now mm-hmm. um i think that that's a very important thing to make sure that the people that are being represented have you know they the people that are representing the people are the ones making that decision and not just you're right. not just unilateral right. decision it, not it, just it, hand waving it, 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 it away the
2: problem then of course is, you know is that you know if you're a constitutionalist or if you believe in like this idea the concept of you know declaring war the problem with that is that you know we've already passed these treaties with the united nations if you want to declare war, you have to go to the United Nations and you have to get a coalition and you have to get all of this buy-in from the international community, which to an extent flies in the face of the intent of the Constitution and the Founding Fathers that the United States should be allowed to conduct foreign policy uh, war-making from a unilateral perspective, but that doesn't exist anymore. And you can argue about whether or not that's the right way to go or not. I would argue probably not. I would prefer that the United States does you know, conduct its policy in from a unilateral fashion, but not everybody agrees. Some people think you should have to go to the United Nations and get buy-in from the international community. But that to a large extent, it's because of the treaties and the post World War II system that we've set up that the United States that no one really declares war anymore. Nobody does because they don't what they do is they just call it like a kinetic military action or they the Congress has passed um, you know, what do they call it, um Continuing resolutions, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Authorizations for the use of military force. So they do that, so they don't have to go to the United Nations and say, "Hey, we'd like to declare war on Tajikistan or whatever." And, and so, like, we're not oper- We're not living in the real world as libertarians on foreign policy. We're not. We're not. We're not uh, engaging with the with diplomacy, and we're not. Um, we're not looking at the world as it is. We're looking at the world as we wish it would be and then trying to operate in a, in a paradigm that doesn't exist. Javier Malay does not do this. Javier Malay says what he believes, and campaigned as an anarcho-capitalist, said exactly what he believed about the Pope, uh, being a communist, and at the end of the day, last week he went to Italy, he shook hands with the Pope, who's the head of state, uh, and invited him back to Argentina where his, his ancestral home, and, and was diplomatic, despite the fact that it's quite clear that Javier disagrees very deeply with the Pope's you know, Jesuit views when it comes to um, you know, the, the proper role of government power. So here we have someone who is an anarcho-capitalist who understands the, the fine nuances of foreign policy, who understands the complications of diplomacy, who understands the role of the United States in Israel, for better or for worse, as leaders in the world in in standing for a system of government that is aimed at representing individuals and not autocrats. The United States, for better or for worse, has a system that relies on buy-in from the individuals, from the consent of the governed. It it does it have its problems? You know, I'll entertain any libertarian criticism of oh the consent of the governed, if you will, and suggest that you know we need massive reform here in the United States. There's certainly no doubt about that, but I think that it is a superior form of government to a monarchy or an autocracy or just a straight up you know um, dynastic. Uh, monarchy, something akin to North Korea, that you live in a country that has the the consent of the governed. And so do I think the United States should go abroad looking for monsters to slay? No. Do I want the United States to be involved in conflicts around the world? Do I want us to be funding Israel or Ukraine? No, I do not. And that's what separates me from a neoconservative interventionist point of view. But I do believe that there is a role in the United States in protecting are shipping lanes, and this is a big one that I've been convinced of in recent years, specifically by, by Larry Sharp, as a matter of fact, who is, a, <laughs> who is a U.S. Marine. But I do think that it is the proper role of the U.S. Navy to protect American merchant shipping. I didn't used to believe that. I used to think, no, corporations should have to put fifty caliber machine guns on their boats and protect... I still think they should, but the problem is... is that They aren't they allowed can't... to. Yeah, they can't. They can't do that. They aren't allowed to. Well, they're not allowed to. Right. And that and so because of that, um, you know, I think that it's more important that the United States protect its international trade system that benefits us all as a product of our free market capitalism so that we can export not necessarily democracy, but that we can export American culture, because if anything, the most powerful export that America has is our culture. I think I read a really good article the other day that talked about like America's cultural dominance in the world is like our greatest strength but in in many ways it's also our weakness because because american culture is so ubiquitous around the world it's easy for um uh, vladimir putin or xi jinping to see the weaknesses in our culture and the cultural divides in the united states so china of course is going to finance black lives matter you know commercials and media that's going to make Black Lives Matter look good because they know that's going to piss off conservatives, right? Vladimir Putin is going to say uh, terrible things about transgenders and homosexuals, not necessarily because he he uh, believes it. It's for him. It's just tools to power, and and he knows that he can take advantage of these these people in the United States who are going to agree with those views because he knows that right wing. Authoritarians are going to say, Look at Vladimir Putin. He hates the gays just like I do, right? Yeah. He must well, really be a responsible right man. Yeah. He just loves his country. He's stopping the global Homo Western. No, no, he's, you know, he's taking advantage of you, knowing he knows in American culture that that's a weak spot for us and that that's going to cause division here in the United States. So, so the, going back to Javier Malay, Javier Malay is not naive. Now, he recognizes who the good guys are. If there are good guys or bad guys, Javier Malay recognizes that it's better to have an alliance with the United States because these values are closer to anarcho-capitalism than are they are of Putinist Russia. And yep. That's my and, and rant.
0: No, no, no. I, I, I think you're right. I, there's a lot of there's some things I disagree with Malay on, but overall I am I've been I've I've seen him a breath of fresh air. Also, it's been shocking to see just how unified uh, every subset of even the American movement have been in some positive praise for him. I've seen the regime <laughs> beltways and the paleos and the end caps, everybody's coming together and saying, look, this, this guy is somebody that, that's doing good things. Um, so that's interesting. So, But we are at about an hour, so I do want to pivot to something that's more of a forward-thinking kind of uh, way for us to, to end this conversation. And that's basically the vision that you have of this new movement. Now, I mean, obviously, we're, we're I think, on different sides. I know that you consider yourself a, um, a Republican, and a, you're a part of that space right now. I, I'm definitely far, far, far from that. But I do think that we share some similar views, especially when it comes to our criticisms of the things we discuss on foreign policy. But one of the things that you did mention early in the conversation, I think you've mentioned this online, is that we kind of need a new framework to think through these ideas. And... Um, I think on Twitter, uh, when somebody pushed you on this, you had said something like, um, grounded in private property and natural rights. So I'm curious if you had to articulate, if, you know, if, you, if, if Austin Peterson, as Gary used to say, had, could wave a magic wand and say, what is the next major transformation of libertarian uh, philosophy? How would you, how would you um, rethink it? And maybe you can expand on that idea that you mentioned on Twitter a couple months ago. Well,
2: I think a lot is going to hinge on, <clears throat> you know, from a tactical, practical perspective here. I think a lot's going to hinge on what happens in the election this fall, uh, and it, depending on the outcome of the uh, presidential race in the Libertarian Party, I think you're going to see sort of what the the movement is. Um, people are only going to change once they experience such pain that they're forced to change, and so. You know, Dave Smith and the uh, the Mises Caucus and others had promised to get a higher vote percentage total than Gary Johnson did in 2016. If they can't accomplish that, then it's sort of a, a legacy squandered to a large extent. The the takeover wasn't able to uh, accomplish its its promises, and I think that the shrinking of the party, um, you know, will be the wake up call that people are going to look for new ideas. I can't say what it's going to be, but I can say what I would like it to be. Uh, and I would like to see um, whatever kind of a libertarian Javier Malay is is what I am, uh, and so you know he's in, he you know he's I like to describe it as an anarcho capitalist in the streets, but a minarchist in the sheets. So at the end of the day, when it's time to get the business done, Javier takes a very pragmatic approach. He has his principles and he has his ideals and he knows what he believes and he understands economics. But in order to bring these principles to bear, you have to be able to make compromises and to meet people halfway. so I would like to see an idealistic libertarianism that has that takes pragmatic steps. Milton Friedman is probably the best example of someone in the United States who advanced ideals and uh, and sometimes even you know to to our detriment in in proposing ideals uh, ideas that um, in in practice I think ended up being a mistake. Um, you know I'm not necessarily a big fan of the the negative income tax right or and i'm not you know uh, a bit the biggest fan of of some of his monetary policies, but needless to say, many of the uh, policies that he espoused were were good things for the united states and and he had a, he had a big uh, impact on libertarian thinking and in ideals and certainly he had a huge impact in in Chile uh, and in uh, in countries like Estonia after the fall of the Soviet Union. So there has to be some form of a pragmatic approach that meets the American people where they're at and offers a bridge towards our ideas that doesn't rip the rug out from underneath their feet, doesn't, you know, doesn't spook the horses, as we say in Missouri, right? So it's like people should be able to transition from this position of where we're at to the the next best thing. Um, Americans at this point they're fat, they're happy they've got their Xboxes, they've got their drugs they're they're more than happy to stay where they're at. We're not at 250 infl- percent inflation right. like the people of Argentina are. But the libertarian movement is essentially the Argentina of political movements. you know we're at 250 percent inflation. we have got corruption uh, you know everywhere we''re we're, we're, de- we're dying and we're destitute. And uh, if we don't get, I mean, I, we may not have a Javier Malay to come in to save us, but at the end of the day, maybe the spirit of Javier Malay after this election this fall, people will be inspired, hopefully look to be inspired to start a new liberty movement that, that has the same principles and ideals we've always believed, but takes that diplomatic, pragmatic approach that Javier Malay does that that actually can unify people and take us in a new direction. Because I think, you know, let's, if the Libertarian, let's say the Mises Caucus is successful and gets 3.5%, right? They're <laughs> going to take that as, they're going to take that as a, a huge win and they're, they're going to trumpet that and then they're going to, it's going to continue the slow decline. So, you know, collapsitarians, right? They see the they want to hurry up the, the fall of the United States, right? To some extent, I'm a collapsitarian with the Liberty Movement, like, Let's just kind of like, you know, stop playing, you know, stop the, what do you call the fallacy when you spent money fallacy? when it's, you it's keep a, spending It's a money? sunk
0: cost fallacy. Yeah. Sunk cost
2: fallacy. Yeah. Let's stop sinking money into these, into what we've been doing here in the Liberty movement. And let's just walk away from the table, say, okay, let's write that off as a loss. Let's start something new. And I hope to be a part of, of it being something that very much mirrors closely what Javier is doing in Argentina.
0: I, I think that's a really, um, I think we're incredibly aligned in, in that regard when we look forward to the future because I am uh, of the same boat that uh, the sunk cost su- – first of all, the other people that are still there, the sunk cost fallacy is basically the driver for many of the people that are, that are still involved and still wasting time. But, I mean, can you imagine just how much we might have been able to achieve as a movement if many of these people – would have not been Sisyphus with the Libertarian Party and pushing that up the hill for for, for a decade, and they were actually organized around a different. Right. Well, and remember, like there's
2: there's all these little ki- like you know kings and queens of their little kingdoms, and they don't want to lose their positions that they have right now because they very much benefit from the the state of the movement as it is right now. I mean, and nobody is gonna. I don't think anybody would admit that we're in a good position right now. No. But there are individuals who are certainly doing very well with the current status quo. As it is right now, as a matter of fact, Dave Smith was very proud in our debate on foreign policy to say, well, I'm doing just fine, Austin. I'm doing just fine. I've got lots of followers. And he loves to trumpet his followers as an example of how correct he is about things. Uh, And I didn't, you know, I didn't respond, but I, I tried not to make it too personal, but I'm like, well, Dave, I'm glad you're doing well, but everybody else is doing pretty shit. The rest of the movement is not doing as well as Dave Smith is. So I'm glad you're personally benefiting from this, Dave, and that you're in a good position. But as of writ large, your movement ain't looking too hot.
0: Yeah, and that is absolutely true. There needs to be a complete rethink of these 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 ideas. There needs to be a complete rework of the coalitions. <clears throat> the things that have worked for the last or the things that failed for the last ten or fifteen years have to be completely rethought, re-th- know, rethought through, and, and reworked. So, I yeah, I yeah, do I think know.
1: that you know we talk about collapsitarianism and we're hoping the U.S. burns down. You know, the American population is not up for that we are actually doing very well by and large as a, as a as a nation our economy is chugging along there are concerning things don't get me wrong there's plenty that needs to be fixed don't get me wrong but we are not in the position of argentina where it is to burn it down let's try anything we can to fix things because things are generally as far as looking around at the rest of the world we're doing pretty damn well but what we what we have to see and what we have to recognize is that over the next decade particularly once trump is no longer a factor I think that you are going to see some major realignments in the political spectrum and I really hope that the liberty movement is is in a position to capitalize on it. One of the one of the things that my local county chair of the Libertarian Party Ed Class says often he says, you know, right now people are not going to vote for vote and elect a libertarian party president. But I damn well want to make sure that if the voters ready for that that we're ready to put one on the ballot that they can get into office. And that's that's the kind of attitude, regardless of whether it's through the Libertarian Party or through the Republican Party or Democratic Party, we need to find a way to make sure that if if the populace, if, if the general population of America is ready for it, that we're also ready for it.
2: Amen, yep. brother. Amen. It's a great conversation, guys, and I'm glad that yep. you brought me on to have it. I think we need to have more conversations like this on this topic specifically i think there's a hunger for it um it pisses off all the right people and um i think that if we can come to if we can come to some basic consensus uh in the liberty movement around like a a foreign policy ideal that's more based in a a realistic worldview. And, you know, not necessarily even like a communist worldview. I know that this name is anathema to libertarians, but ever since Henry Kissinger died, I've really been reading a lot more about his foreign policy because, you know, as Ron Paul said back in the days when – in that that very same speech that got me activated, he said, Richard, he said, Republicans were elected to end the war in Vietnam. Um, And the person who was the power behind the scenes of Richard Nixon was Henry Kissinger. So, in looking at that example, I'm reading more about his view of foreign policy that is not based in a Howard's Zinn, Noam Chomsky view of foreign policy, but like true Republican, real politic foreign policy. Richard Nixon may have been one of the greatest foreign policy presidents that we have seen in the last 100 years, not because he was so perfectly libertarian, but. He accomplished things that libertarians would dream to have accomplished, except, including opening up trade with China, uh, and he did end the war in Vietnam eventually after he bombed Cambodia and Laos and you know killed a lot of people. But those are the consequences of the man with power. the 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 man who you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown, and until we can understand why why nation states act in their own self-interests the same way that individuals act, then I don't think we're going to move forward with any kind of a coherent foreign policy because at the moment, I would not trust a libertarian to be president of the United States who advocated the foreign policy views I hear. I would not trust them to safeguard our national security. And I think most Americans agree that, and I think probably one of the big reasons libertarians don't win elections is because people Do not trust us on foreign policy, because I I think they see us as hopefully naive. And dangerous at worst, um, because of not just the pro-Putinist views, but a a foreign policy view that is anti-American. If you go to the United States and you say, you're the problem, you're the reason for all the problems in the world, you're the reason Russia invaded Ukraine, Uh, and you're the reason that, uh, that we have all these wars, by the way, vote for me good luck it's probably not going to work out for you yeah well
0: or if you're wearing a a blindfold to everything that's happening across the world and blaming yourself yeah exactly so no you're absolutely right on that um there definitely needs to be rethinking austin i appreciate you taking the time uh to come articulate some of those criticisms i I think this will definitely get uh, make the rounds online i'm sure uh in the coming weeks and uh for those that are well
1: you mentioned you mentioned henry kissinger in a neutral light which means we will all be excommunicated quite quickly (laughs) It's all awful. over again, yeah, for the fifth <laughs> time hour. or something for all Well, you know,
2: like you uh, honestly, like th- and that was another thing that Dave was really troubled by in our debate was that I said I suggested that he should get some neocon friends uh in order to listen to people who disagree with him on foreign policy, right? I have communist friends, I have neocon friends, I have libertarian friends, I have friends from all over the different views and spectrums of foreign policy, and i and I inform my views based on all of these interactions and understandings, rather than a single centralized power of uh, view of foreign policy. For people who are all about decentralization, they certainly have mainlined their foreign policy views to one single institution, which I find fascinating. Thank you, Yeah,
0: that's definitely unwise in every situation, so I couldn't agree more. Um, Austin, you're welcome back anytime. For those of... You that want to follow Austin, you can follow him on Twitter or X or whatever the hell Elon's calling it today, uh, at AP4Liberty. Do you have any other things to plug, Austin, uh, if our audience wants to learn more about you?
2: Yeah, so just the Wake Up America shows every Monday through Friday, 7 to 9 a.m. Central Time. And it's a really fun way to start your day to get informed about what's happening in the world. Uh, we do serious interviews and we do goofball stuff like little karaoke during the holiday seasons and things like that. So if you're looking for a family-friendly, liberty-friendly show, talk show in the morning, that isn't all like 45-minute lectures about the intricacies of cryptocurrency uh, then I think the Wake Up America show is a, is a really good um, you know, introduction to uh, libertarian ideas to start your day. So so join me at rumble.com slash AP4Liberty and uh, I think people will uh, really enjoy it. It's a really fun show and it's really taken off. We're, we're getting to where we're like averaging around 50,000 downloads a day of the show. So I mean it's that right there is, you know, a very sure sign of success. So for
1: take that, Dave Smith.
2: <laughs> now you have to agree with me. Now I'm more right because I have this many downloads. Right, that's that's what makes me right.
0: Yeah, well, you, you know, know it. it. Well, yeah. Thanks again, Austin. Everyone, have a great day. You can find our learn more about Project Liberal at projectliberal.org or follow us on Twitter at Project Liberal. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you.